be joined by Graham Daniels. Graham is director of Cambridge United. He's the general director of Christians in Sports. Um, and in his playing career, he played both for Cardiff and for Cambridge. Um, and he's also managed um, and he's just an all round pretty great guy. And so it's really good to have Graham with us this evening. So, Graham, welcome. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Graham, to your friends and to many who know you, you're Dano. So are we allowed to call you Dano tonight? Um, yeah, that, only my mother calls me Graham. <laughs> well, I won't call you Graham then, Dano. Now, we were chatting a little bit earlier this afternoon, and um, I was wondering whether you were going to be happy or sad this evening, because uh, Cambridge were playing Bolton, and you're kind of neither, really. It was one or wasn't it? How was yes, I'm, I'm quite content. Uh, we've played about seven games, and... Uh, we've won eight games, I think. We've won five, so we're in a pretty healthy condition at the moment. Yeah. Um, but it was one all and Bolton scored both goals, didn't they? Uh, they did, happily. They, well, as tough for their goalkeeper because he, he punched one into his own net. So I shouldn't enjoy that too much. But, uh, yeah, it, it was a nice game. It's very weird at the moment, Michael, because I only live about 10 minutes from the football ground and, and you, I walk there and it's... I mean, we don't have a big crowd, so it's hard to detect the difference, but <laughs> no, there's nobody there, like nobody at all. It's extremely weird. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, uh, uh, average day. We're all right. Thank yeah. you. Thank Good. You. Um, now, Graham, um, you've obviously been involved in football for many, many years. Um, I hear that you have a particular claim to fame, though, in your footballing career. Um, that, uh, oh, yeah. It's a particular record, I believe. Is it a world record? Yes, well, I, I don't want to shock people now by the, the brilliance of this record, but since you ask me, um, if you have a Guinness Book of Records or you Google it online, I think we're still in it, actually. And this was a long time ago. This was um, 1980. I think it was 1983 to 84. So it was a long time ago. And um, Cambridge United, uh, from October 83, mm-hmm. So even if you don't like football, do the sum with this. October 83 to March 84, which is no small amount of time. Uh, we played 31 games in total in that period, 31. Yeah. Um, we drew four and lost 27. <laughs> and, uh, I played in all of them, actually. <laughs> one of them and uh, that's a long time ago isn't it and we still have the record for the longest run of games in the championship without winning a game fantastic well yeah well, that's my career really isn't it it's, it's just yeah. full of stories of, of failing but happily becoming a christian and finding the best thing i possibly could <laughs> fantastic so uh so well that's a great way to start um but, but seriously let's go back you, you started your playing career at Cardiff. But how did you get into football in the first place? Oh, well, Michael, to great shame, really, because I'm Welsh and uh, I grew up in a town called Llanelli. Yes, and my father, it was a very serious moment when I I told my father when I was about 15 that I needed a serious conversation with him. Father was a steel worker, so he was a big lad. And uh, he said, what's the matter? I said, oh, you better sit down, Dad. He said, sit down. What have you done? Let me get your mother, John. Come here. What, what's going on? What, what have you, what have you done? I said, listen, Dad. I want to be a footballer. He said, no, no, <laughs> no. I didn't think it would be this serious. 
because you're a rugby man, you see. Well, did they ever ever forgive you? Oh, they were lovely parents. (laughs) So it soon (laughs) washed over. But uh, I, 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 I just like playing football and uh, of course it was the 70s uh, so you couldn't really play football in a Welsh grammar school you had to play rugby and cricket um, uh, but when you went into the sixth form you were allowed to play football so it was at that point that uh, I signed for Cardiff City and started playing a little bit yeah. Wow so you, so you went through Cardiff and then through to, to Cambridge United um, what would be one of the highlights, would you say, of your playing career, other than, of course, setting the Guinness World Records? For yeah, yeah that's the only thing I ever won. <laughs> you know, the only thing we ever won was the Guinness Book of Records. Uh, <laughs> or, well, I, I suppose uh, as a little boy, uh, my, my favourite player, uh, my my cousin Robert supported Liverpool and uh, he gave me a Chinese burn once to persuade me to support them. So I was left <laughs> with no option. And I, I know that's very naughty. Uh, but I did support them after that somehow. I didn't dare not. And Kevin Keegan played for them, and uh, he was my hero as a little boy. Uh, and then, remarkably, uh, in the midst of the uh, 31-game unwinning run, we played at uh, St. James's Park, and uh, Keegan was in his last season as a professional footballer, so he was playing for Newcastle. Mm. Um so it was very exciting to to turn up at St James's Park, and uh, there he is, the big little man himself, because he was only small. Uh, but I suppose it was something I dreamt of and never imagined would happen. Yeah. And so there we were, forty thousand people, St James's Park. Now, of course, we lost naturally, uh, and we were two nil down at half time. But I, I will tell you a, a very short story, just in case anyone like sport at all because it was a very funny moment because before the game our manager typically about 10 minutes before kickoff the coach gives you a kind of encouraging come on we can do it and of course you're all obliged to say at the end of his rousing speech we can't do it come on so at 10 to 3 uh, we were bottom of the league they were top of the league they had Keegan and Peter Beardsley and Chris Waddle and all these famous players and our manager said, we can do this. I know we're bottom and they're top, but they've got some weaknesses. <laughs> and we all thought, they haven't got any. They've got hundreds. He said, come on. And of course, outside, we all went, come on. And inside, we all said, we will lose. We will lose. <laughs> anyway, Michael, um, in the second half, they got a bit complacent because it was too easy for them and they were 2-0 up. And, and they slackened off a little bit. And we had an attack, which was quite unusual, and the ball went forwards. And uh, I ran for the penalty area as it ran, as somebody went down the wing, and he crossed it. And I arrived at the far post just at the same time as the ball. He went in, and he went in, and it hit the net. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I dreamt of it since I was about six. Uh, and there it was. So I suppose for a young man, really, I was 21, 22 maybe at that time, it was a, it was a bit of a dream come true, you know, because you have these boyhood ideas. And so it, it was a lovely moment. It was, yeah, it was a lovely moment. Fantastic. So, um, so football's obviously been a big part of your life. You're still involved in football with, um, uh, Cambridge United, your director, Cambridge United. Obviously your Christian faith has also been a big part of your life and you're the director of Christians in Sport. We'll come to that a little bit later. So we've heard about how the, football side began but how did the Christian side begin how did you first get introduced to the Christian faith who was it who first really brought you to think about it 
I, I guess your first few questions are appropriate because it, it was actually at school. And I guess I'm 58 now. I was 15 at the time. So in many ways, in as a Christian, you trust that God is obviously kind and he has purpose and, and a meaning for life. Uh, and I think in some ways this started at, at 15. It, it was May time. I was in what's now for a year 10. And uh, there was a knock at the door of my classroom at five to 12 on a sunny May day. And it was a, a boy from the upper sixth who was a very brilliant sportsman. And he asked if I was in the room and could I be allowed to leave? I was thinking, gosh, I don't even know this man. What have I done? Uh, I mean, he was, a, he was quite, you know, he was, he nearly had a beard and everything. He was like a man. And uh, anyway, to cut the story to its quick, the, the cricket team was short. I thought I was picked because I was good, but I was the easiest boy to go and get his uniform, his cricket kit. So I was on the bus to Cardiff, 50 miles. Um, off we went. Uh, I didn't bat. I didn't bowl. If you like cricket, I was third man and I did nothing else. Uh, but I made up the numbers happily. And we jumped on the I bus. Say, to come. I always say, Graham, I was an all-rounder. I was all-round bad at everything. So. Precisely. It's You can see this picture building, can't you? And, uh, but, but this was the... This was a, a life-changing moment, really. Uh, he batted well, he, he bowled well, he's a very good player. But he was kind enough to sit by a boy who didn't know anyone on the minibus uh, on the way up and on the way back, a quietly spoken man called Guion Jenkins. And uh, we were a couple of miles out of Cardiff, and, he, and it was a Monday. He said, what did you do at the weekend? I said, oh, uh, I played cricket on Saturday and uh, Sunday, of course, 70s, Wales. I, I started going to chapel as a little boy uh, with mum and dad, but I, I was refusing to go really at 15. And uh, I said, oh, I didn't do anything yesterday because there was nothing open and nothing on. So it's a bit boring. Mm-hmm. I said, what did you do? And he said, oh, I played cricket Saturday and I went to church yesterday. And before I could stop it, it was out of my mouth. I said, what do you go to church for? <laughs> Does your mother still make you go to church? Thinking you're 18, you've got a beard, a brilliant sportsman. And of course, I looked up to him because he was in the upper six and he was. Uh, and then he said, uh, I, I, I can hear it now from him. He said, uh, he, he colored up, he blushed a bit, you know. And he said, well, uh, well I go to church because um, I follow Jesus. And I thought to myself, 45 miles to go. <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck here. Uh, now, Michael, if I just fast forward to say a brief addendum to that, when I became a Christian six years later, he was incredibly faithful in keeping in touch and writing and mm-hmm. visiting. Uh, I asked him about that day mm-hmm. and he, he told me that he went home that night and this has always encouraged me. He went home that night and his mum and dad said, how was the game? And he said, uh, yeah, good. And his dad said, well, his mum and dad were Christians. And they said, well, Dad said, well, he don't look very happy. He said, yeah, he said, uh, he said, this, he said, I'd never told anyone I was a Christian. And he said, I did, I was determined this week I was going to say something about being Christian to somebody because I've never done it. Mm-hmm. And he said, and so there was this boy, we took him because we were short and he came on the bus. And on the way back, I tried to tell him about my faith. His dad said, well, how did it go? He said, I was absolutely useless, useless. I mean, he'll never be interested. I was useless. And then I think that is that has made me say, I, I know that's not our context tonight, but anyone who's not a Christian listening to this tonight, and indeed anyone who might be a Christian, 
what that taught me, the very first thing I ever learned really was nobody's clever enough, nobody's sophisticated enough, nobody's too stupid. You you just tell the truth about faith. Mm -hmm. If you came to faith, you tell the truth about your faith. And God is so much bigger, of course, than your own failure. So he was really sorry. That was a long story, but he was a big influence, really. That day and for another six years, writing, visiting, coming yeah. to see. Yeah, so that's where it all began, really, just um, on that yeah. on that bus. And then yeah. how did you progress from there, from that kind of inauspicious start, really? <laughs> uh, well, that game, I suppose, that you asked about, the, the Newcastle game, um, it was an ambition, you know, a childhood sort of dream that you think is a fantasy to play against that player and so on and score. Um, and actually, we drove home from Newcastle, of course, after the game that night. And on the Tuesday night, we were playing in a League Cup, a sort of small cup competition. And we were playing in London at Brentford. And there were about 5,000 people and Newcastle was packed. And, and New, playing at Newcastle was like playing the big team. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming home from the Brentford game at half past 10 on the bus to Cambridge from West London, thinking, hmm. I've never been as high as I was on Saturday in my in my life. But already by Tuesday, it was dissatisfying. I wanted it again. And playing at Brentford and three years earlier, if somebody had said you can play in the first team of a professional club in a cup competition in London, I'd have paid anything to play. And now it wasn't enough. And, and I thought of, guess who? I sat on the bus coming home and I thought of Guion Jenkins and I thought of his Jesus I thought of the Jesus he told me about and uh, yeah. kindly, gently, but firmly asked me to think about the truths of Jesus. So it was in, it was in that next six months. I'd left home, mm-hmm. moved from Wales to Cambridge, qu- quite not lonely, but quite on my own, really, 21, 22. And my dad brought all my books from home in the back of a van, and in them was my... O-Level or GCSE Bible. Uh, I had my Bible from O-Level scripture and I hid it behind the collected works of Karl Marx. Volumes <laughs> 1, 2 and 3 because I wanted to look clever and I didn't want anyone to see the Bible. And I started reading the Bible and I got to 1 Corinthians 15, a letter written in the New Testament six months in, just to read the Bible quietly on my own. Nobody knew. And I read this letter where the writer, a man called Paul, says to Christians in the church in Greece, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Mm. When I read it, I thought, well, what's the opposite of that? If Christ did rise from the dead, your faith is of infinite value. Mm. So it's a choice. It either happened or it didn't. He either beat death or he didn't. If he beat death, the rest is true about his claims. And for some reason, on that Tuesday night in my digs in Cambridge, it's as if everything aligned. The people I'd met who were Christians, the claims of Christ, the wit, the behaviors of people, the dissatisfaction with life, mm. and it just aligned. And I thought I've got to follow Christ. That was it. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. So it was that realization that actually, you know, even if you had won the game and even if you had achieved all of those goals, it still wasn't going to satisfy. But there was something that you saw in Jesus that was different. Yeah. And that was satisfying. 
Yeah, and, and I know this is jumping your head, Michael, but what's been fantastic over all the years since is it never ceases to be amazing when somebody who's in that profession, that's why I've stayed in that world really, because God was kind enough to find me in that world. And I just felt that what Guion Jenkins did for me, others need, people need to know. So yeah. it's amazing now, really, you know, what we've just discussed over probably 30 years, every time that penny drops and somebody says, oh, gosh, I understand who Jesus is and what he's done for me. Whenever you see that, you know, you see a whole shift in optimism, hope purpose, resilience, actually, mental toughness, dare I say. I've seen it so many times inside that business, you know, where people do it as a job. So, yeah, wonderful. So you're saying that knowing Jesus is infinitely better than the greatest achievement you could have in football. But I guess there might be some people saying, really? (laughs) I mean, come on, like scoring a goal at St. James's Park, Mm. you know, having the adulation of a crowd, Mm. um, you know, that would be pretty good. Yeah. How can you say, what is it about knowing Jesus that is better than everything that you could have in sporting success? Yeah. Well, I think there's probably two immediate answers come to mind. You're playing on the, on the old film, Four Weddings and a Funeral. If you play professional sport, it's four funerals and a wedding. Uh, it never, ever, every week you fail. Most weeks you fail. And even if it's 5,000 supporters, it's up and down and your job hinges on it. And you've got two year contracts if you're lucky, not in the Premier League, you're mega star, but still there's more pressure. But for most professional footballers, they've got one or two year contracts, you're mid 20s, 30s, you've got a family, you have to do your job. It's a job. Mm. And so it's not like being a fan, you know, you go up and down, but you go to work on Monday. But if it's your job, you live with that. And secondly, it becomes um, it becomes so important. It blocks out everything else that's valuable in life. Your your wife, your your children. Uh, everything ends up taking second place to making it, staying in the team. So it does look from the outside. I know it sounds a bit grumpy, but from the outside, you know, for the superstar people, it, it looks an incredible lifestyle. But like every other human being. And I think this is the direct answer to your question. If there is a God who made us and who knows us and who gave us any talents we have, they belong to him, not to me. Mm. And I think through Christ coming into a relationship with the God who created me, Mm. that's what aligned. God made me able to play. It wasn't my own talent. The manager wasn't in charge of my life. God is in charge of my life. My ups and downs can't ultimately be dependent on what happens in this world because God has saved me through the cross of Christ mm-hmm. for eternal life. And it just put into context the job as a postscript, though, I should say. And I've known hundreds of players over the years who have faced in Christ. It actually I've no doubt about this. It actually makes you. A better player. And I don't mean you get more skillful or talented. I don't mean that. And I don't mean that you get more success. But it means over five and 10 year careers, 15 years, because people know God personally through faith in Christ, 
because God's spirit lives in them. And here's the amazing thing, because they start to mix with people outside of football by going to church. They actually start to mix with young and old children, people who don't care anything about sport and actually their actual lives through becoming part of a church bring balance to that pressure of the job. So there's a few factors in there that I went through that are wonderful things to see when somebody meets Christ personally. That's wonderful. So you came to know Jesus, you're still playing football and how did your Christian faith now impact your life being involved in sports? Um, did you, was it challenging? Did people accept the fact that you were now a Christian or did they have a go at you for it? Well, one of the big changes, because I'm involved today, uh, you know, e- even in the last week, I- I- I've been sent three notes uh, to Christians in sport from players who say, uh, I'm a Christian and could you put me in touch with somebody? Now, if I go back to 1983 or four or five, I, I mean, I-, I played for six months and uh I kept asking every Saturday, does any, is anyone a Christian here? I stopped asking that after a while. I said, does anyone go to church here? You know, old pals in football. Mm. And then about six months later, um, this, <laughs> this chap came to our training ground. Well, it's a porter cabin on a park and, uh, and he was very posh. He was, he was called Andrew Wingfield Digby. And they said, oh, there's this really posh bloke in reception wants to see you. And he said, hello, how are you? <laughs> and he said, I gather you're a Christian. I said, yes, I am. How do you know? I'd been baptized. It was in a local paper. And he said, did I know there were other Christians playing professional football? I said, no, there aren't. I said, I, I ask every Saturday. I, there's nobody. And he said, well, I, I've started a little organization and I know some. And I thought, well, you may be a posh dude, but obviously if you start an organization, you might know some. And now I'm excited. There's 90 league clubs. And I said, oh, well, marvellous. I said, well, how many? And he said, four. I said, four? He said, yeah, four. I said, well, who are they? And he named three. I said, who's the fourth? He said, you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So at the time, I think, Michael, at the time, you know, anyone who's old enough to know the culture, the workplace culture and the sort of working class environment of the 70s and early 80s, it was rough. You know, it was aggressive and quite bullying and macho and, and you would make fun of people who are different. So, yeah, I got a lot of stick, a lot of stick for being a Christian in those first couple of years. Today, it's completely different. The culture is changing. I'm allowed to say spiteful things and, you know, religion sensitive and ethnicity. And so these things are gone in a sort of overt way. But, yeah, there was a lot of stick flying around. Yeah. Um, how, how did you respond to that when people started giving you stick for your Christian faith? Uh, well, you know, I, I'm Welsh, so... Working class Welsh boys got plenty of the gab. So I didn't struggle in the banter, really. Um, uh, I think I was wired up to give, you know, give, give it back. Um, uh, and, and seriously, I, I think that's just a question of personality or makeup. I, I was a, I'm a shy person by nature, but like lots of shy people, I can be good at the front when I have to chat and talk and, uh, and I could do it, you know, but then I had to get away. So I, I found I used to spend quite a lot of my time by myself because you only work about three hours a day. 
because you have to rest, apparently. Uh, so I used to spend a lot of time by myself, really. And then another boy was converted at my club called Alan Comfort, uh, who actually was signed to replace me. And he did replace me as well, the rascal. But he was converted to Christ. And uh, when we had a year together, that was wonderful because we went to church in, uh, in Cambridge together. And we used to meet together a couple of times a week, you know, just to build each other up. So it was robust. It was a robust period, but uh, um, I loved it, really, because it was like a chance to talk about. The boys were secretly, they secretly couldn't work out what was going on. You know, how were you not scared of the manager? Why, why were you not scared to say, no, listen, if we have that, if we're going out for a boys night out and that's happening, I'm not coming to that, but I'll see you after. You do that. I'm not coming to that. And I'll come and see you and I'll meet you after. And you'd always be the taxi driver on the end of a night out. Mm. And of course, as many will know, if you're willing to be the taxi driver when people are on a night out, you have the most wonderful personal conversations at midnight. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah, it was robust, but f- f- fun, I think. I learned a lot. Brilliant. Fantastic. So you've been obviously involved in football, you're still involved in football, but you're now also the director of this organisation, Christians in Sports. Um, some people will know what that is, um, but some people won't. So, so what does Christians in Sport exist to do and how are you involved in that? Well, I guess the, the, the lovely thing about the way you're asking the questions is very helpful to me to, me to answer that, because Christians in Sport is really, Guion Jenkins, become an organisation, <laughs> really. You know, it's just saying to people, look, if you're a girl who plays sport and trains a couple of times a week and plays for a team or you're a lad at university or a professional athlete or plays for your local club, God made you able to do this. And if it's an interest or a passion or a job that you have, sharing Christ with people where you share a common interest is the most marvelous and intuitive availability. So, so that's what it is for, really, Michael. That's that's it. It is a very simple thing, sharing the gospel, reaching the world of sport for Christ. Yeah, that's fantastic. Got two more questions. And then at the end, just to remind people, there'll be an opportunity to ask more questions as well. So um, uh, rather than me hog you for all the questions, we'll let people ask um, after Tony's spoken. Um, but just for people who may be Christians and they're involved in sport, what would your advice be to Christians who are involved in that world. Well, as I get older, I think the first piece of advice I always give myself is to a Christian. I'd say, pray more. God's so much bigger than my my pathetic attempt to be any good at doing this. You know, you, you learn your vulnerability, don't you, when you get older? So I'd say, pray, pray for your club. Uh, n- number two. Be a woman, be a man who, who is the real deal at the club. They, they'll know your weaknesses, of course, if you're in sport, because they see you at your best and your worst. Be real about your strengths and weaknesses, but be present for people. Uh, it's a lovely thing if you're involved in any kind of club, music, art, sport, if you're really engaged with it. I had a lovely vicar at uh, St. Andrew the Great, or Stag in Cambridge, uh, until he died some years ago now, called Mark Ashton. And he was my boss when I came to work with him. And uh, 
he was brilliant because he insisted, he just insisted that anyone who worked with him must have some kind of hobby or investment. They must. I mean, he, he didn't go so far as to make sure that he watched you do it, but he said it's really important to have genuine friendships with people and institutions where people have no idea about how marvelous Jesus Christ is. So, so I think pray, get stuck in and be real. And dare to say what that trembling 18-year-old boy who went red in the face said, which is he pointed away from himself to Jesus, to a 15-year-old kid who just thought, what is he talking about? But at that moment, it triggered God to get to work in the life of a boy who looked at another boy and thought, well, if he can be a Christian, that means I could be a Christian because he's like me. I think view your club as an incredible opportunity to, to, to be this human being. And it's so, it's, it's just so marvellous to go and play sport without being consumed only by whether you did win or lose. It, it is hard to lose, but it's so much better to have a big picture uh, like this. Brilliant. Fantastic. And my last question for now is... Um... Folks are, are not yet a Christian, maybe saying something like this. Well, Dan, I'm pleased for you and pleased that you found this satisfaction and this way of life that enables you to face winning and losing and, and everything else. But but why should it be for me as well? You know, nice for you, but but why why should I bother with Jesus? What would you say to them? I'd say be careful about asking it as a sort of optional extra, I think. And I don't mean that aggressively. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Michael, if I read that line in the New Testament, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, your faith is futile. So, so I think I'd want to say respectfully in a conversation to a, a friend or, or somebody who's willing enough to listen to this this evening, I'd say there, there really is a God. It's a, it's a reality. He exists. That, that's the claim that this starts from. He's there. And he made everything and he made you. And the truth is that all of us have turned away from him. We may be nice about it or nasty about it, but we say, listen, I'm in charge of this, not you. Leave me alone. And because God hates that kind of wickedness, he's totally right and just and fair. He he will say, no problem, but I will judge you guilty. You are guilty of rebelling against the creator of the universe and your creator. So I'd say to a, a friend or somebody who's willing to listen to this now, before we start saying what I think or what I believe or what God should be like or what he hasn't done or pulled off, I would say that's the first part. And then the second part would be to say, this is why Christianity is amazingly liberating. That God who will bring justice to bear on a rebel paid the price because he became the one who died on the cross in his son. And when he died there, and this is the thing that captured me, as it's captured millions of people in history. When you look at that cross, when you, when you stop walking the other way and talking about God and judging him, and then you turn around and look at that cross and what happens there? You just say, you did that for me. Just for me. He did it for me. He died on my behalf. And you paid the price out of love. 
I would encourage you to think hard about that, because when that Jesus beats death and smashes the grave open and reaches out a hand to you, he says, come, take my hand. I'll pay out of love. And third and finally, you mentioned a good word for me, satisfaction. Satisfaction is a smashing word, isn't it? Because it's more than intellectually coherent. And, and in another way, it's more than how you feel. It's a deep-seated security in life. And because of Christ and his spirit who comes to live when you ask him into your life to be your saviour and Lord. I, I found, and millions have, haven't they, a satisfaction that I know who I am. I know who he is. And a security that my life is in his hands and he's got it, whatever comes my way. I'll, I'll never get used to the wonder of this. I just find it remarkable. And so I would say to a, a fellow member of this group tonight or somebody listening subsequently on YouTube, the greatest thing in your life that's at all ever possible is to trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Turn and trust in Christ. And life is secured forever and life is to be lived in a whole new way. It's a great privilege, Michael. So thanks for letting me say that part of it, because that's why tonight's so precious to me. I just want somebody listening to get the chance to act on what I got the chance on. And that lovely young man who told me about Christ and changed everything. Fantastic. Danny, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Uh, you're going to be staying with us and uh, there'll be an opportunity to ask questions a little bit later on. But thank you so much. We've really appreciated you sharing so honestly, openly. And um, that's been really helpful. Just a little reminder before we hand back um, to Tony that you can ask questions. Um, I don't know whether Dave can just flash that up on the screen again. Uh, thanks, Dave. Um, uh, go to slido.com 8158 um, to put your questions in uh, for Dano or for Tony uh, as he speaks in a moment. Um, or if you would prefer, you can just text uh, to the number there on the screen, 07946-852071, and we'll uh, go through some of those questions in about 15 minutes. Uh, but for now, and before that, um, I'm going to hand straight over to Tony, who's going to be speaking to us from that Bible passage that we had read to us just a little bit earlier this evening. Thanks, Tony. Well, good evening, everyone. It's uh, good to be with you. And thank you, Graham, for sharing with us tonight. Um, really fascinating stuff. As um, someone who lives in Bradford and follows Bradford City and uh, losing 3-0 at home today to a Welsh team, uh, I'm just going to leave that there. And we're not going to talk any more about football this evening. Thank you very much. I want you to imagine that after we finish this evening, uh, you make yourself a cup of Yorkshire tea because that's proper tea, of course. And uh, you put on your TV to find that there's an urgent news report. An angry mob has gathered outside a courtroom and the reporter begins to tell you what's going on. Now, she reports that earlier that day, a man accused of armed robbery and murder stood before the judge. Several witnesses testified uh, to seeing the man committing the crimes he'd been accused of. The jury had also seen uh, CCTV footage clearly showing the accused committing the robbery and the murder. And after all the evidence was given, the jury returned the, their verdict. The man was guilty as charged. Then the judge uh, addresses the courtroom. He said that it had been proved beyond all reasonable doubt that the man had committed the crimes. 
Then the judge stood to pronounce judgment, and he said to the man, you are free to go. Now, imagine that was a true story, that after our, our time together tonight, you put on the news and that, that was being reported live. And there's this mob outside the courtroom. What would your response be to that story? It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, you may say something along the lines of, uh, golly gosh, that was unexpected in a rather posh voice uh, as Graham suggested tonight uh, that posh people speak like that golly gosh Uh, but you're more likely to say something like this this is an outrageous miscarriage of justice and the judge should be struck off and possibly even imprisoned himself Uh, we can understand why there's an angry mob outside the court we believe that crime has been committed and justice must be served Now, in our Bible reading uh, this evening, we heard of a woman caught in adultery. It actually says in the Bible that she was caught in the acts of adultery. Interesting. There had been witnesses to what she had done there. If there was such a thing in those days, there may have been CCTV footage showing and proving that she was guilty. She was caught in the act. And according to the law, this woman must be punished. According to the law, this woman should be stoned. So she's brought before the judge so he can pronounce judgment. And the judge these people take this woman to is Jesus Christ. Now, they knew the law. They knew what the punishment for this woman's crime should be. And they fully expected Judge Jesus would pronounce judgment that she should be Taken away and stone apply. Certainly something they weren't expecting. He said this, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Many of us will be familiar with that little saying, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. I found that social media is a great place to throw stones. Every time I go onto social media, there are stones and rocks being thrown all over the place. Now, I tend not to buy newspapers, but rather read the news online. And a few weeks ago, I I was shocked to read my local newspaper, the the Telegraph and Argus. I I was shocked to find a story about someone that I knew. He'd been found guilty of committing a terrible crime. It it really shocked me. I I knew this guy. Um, I had no idea that he would ever do anything uh, which had been reported that he'd done. And the comment section underneath the story was open for people to throw some stones. And throw some stones they did. Their comments showed how terrible the crime was in the eyes of the community. Their comments comments were cruel, vicious, judgmental, and totally unforgiving. I could not repeat uh, to you tonight some of the things that they were saying, but you might imagine. Now, in their eyes... What this man had done was worthy of death. And they would apparently have been happy to carry out the sentence. Those commentating, of course, believe themselves to be without sin. Or at least if they'd ever done anything wrong, it was nothing compared to what this guy had done. And that is generally how we see ourselves, isn't it? Hey, we we may get a few things wrong, but hey, we're not murderous. You know, we, we 
determine how bad we are by looking at other people. And if we find people that are worse in our eyes than we are, we're happy to throw stones at them. And this is how those who sought to stone the woman would have seen themselves. Whatever I may have done, they thought, I'm not as bad as her. Uh, They would have seen themselves as innocent ones who were to judge the guilty and seek to administer the law. But Jesus stopped them in their tracks with these words. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, did you notice what Jesus said in the reading? After Jesus said this, he said, those who heard it being convinced by their conscience did what? Well, they had to drop their stones and they just wandered away. Now, would you have you and I have done the same thing? Hearing Jesus say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Would we too have just put our stones down and had to walk off? from the situation well we should have done you see what jesus taught here is that we're all guilty of sin before a holy god the bible says no one is righteous not one all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god none of us are innocent uh, they may have been tempted to say well wait a minute jesus um i've got a few things wrong here but I, i'm not like this woman I've never been caught in the act of adultery. If that was their response, or if that is even our response, well, Judge Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. Elsewhere in Scripture, in the Bible, he says this. If you look at a woman to lust after her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Maybe some of these guys with stones ready to stone this woman would have known that. We may be tempted to say, well, wait a minute. I'm not like the man in the story that I've just told who who was in the courts. I've never murdered anyone. Well, if that's you as well, then Judge Jesus has a response for you. Elsewhere in the Bible, he says, even to be angry with someone is to commit murder with them, uh, against them in your heart. Now, notice here that Jesus mentions the heart. You see, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Though we would like to profess our innocence, we are guilty sinners at heart. Now, this adulterous woman, though the law said she was guilty, she received mercy from the judge. Now, the man in the court who committed the murder, though the law said he should have been punished, received mercy from the judge. And friends, the Bible tells us that one day each one of us will stand guilty before the judge. And the question for us is this. Will the judge give us mercy as well? How can we be forgiven? Now, just as those in the Bible reading had to drop their stones because their conscience convicted them, we need to listen to our conscience. You see, because our conscience tells us that we're not good. See, Jesus constantly did this when he was speaking, particularly to those who sought to justify themselves and said, well, I'm not as bad as those people. You know, I'm actually quite good. You know, I, I tithe, I, I, um, I, I worship, um, I dress the right way, I pray five times a day, whatever we say. We, we might say on social media today, well, you know, and we make comments um, to those who are, are in the news for committing a crime. We might say, well, they should be hung, uh, they should be thrown in prison and the keys 
uh, thrown away. We say all those things because we don't see ourselves as bad as them. But Jesus constantly said, you are just as bad as them. Because it's a matter of the heart. It's not about just what you do. It's about not just about what you you actually your actions. It's about what you say, what you think. It's a matter of the heart. And so we're all guilty of sin before a holy God. And our conscience tells us so. I'm convinced of that. Our conscience tells us that we need to repent and confess our sin and put our faith in Jesus. Just like the adulterous woman, we need to come to Jesus and for him to rescue us. We need to be forgiven by the judge. If when we stand before the judge and one day, friends, each one of us will stand before God to give an account for the things we've done while living this life. He might ask us this question. Why should I let you go free? What would your answer be to that question from the judge? Uh, we would want maybe to plead our innocence. Well, if we want to plead our innocence, we haven't got a leg to stand on because we're all guilty. We might want to plead our goodness, we, but we've nothing to offer. The Bible says all our righteous acts are as filthy rags. We cannot save ourselves. We need rescuing. We need forgiveness. And that is why Jesus went to the cross. He was on a rescue mission. The Bible tells us that he paid the cost for our sin. He paid the penalty that we deserve. Imagine ourselves standing in that courtroom before the judge. And we know we're guilty. And all the evidence has been shown to us. People have testified of our guilt. The CCTV footage has shown that we're guilty. And it's clear that we need to be punished for our sin. And someone comes in and takes our place. Someone comes in. Jesus comes in and says, look, I know Tony's guilty. I know Graham's guilty. But you know what? I am going to take their place. Let them go free. Friends, that's what it's about. That's the good news of Christianity. He paid the cost of our sin so that we might go free. The punishment that we deserve, he took upon himself. Friends, if you've not already done so, you need to avail yourself of God's mercy. Jesus died and rose again that we might be forgiven. Will you receive that forgiveness if you've not already done it? Will you allow the judge to set you free? One of the wonderful things that Graham has, has been saying tonight is this, that he has a peace and an assurance because he knows Jesus. He knows he's been anything else that's happening in his life, being in the Guinness Book of Records for the wrong things. Um, actually, um, you know, all the football uh, career that he has, all the people he might know, they're all wonderful things, but it's nothing compared to knowing Jesus. Because Jesus has set him free. And so he has an assure, an assured future, not because of anything he's done, but because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Will you allow the judge to set you free? Friends, today is the day of salvation. We, know, we don't know what tomorrow is going to be. The reality of life, isn't it? That we don't know how long we've got. Will you come to him? Will you listen to your conscience and receive mercy from the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm going to pray for us now in closing. And if you if you don't know Jesus, 
And if your conscience has been pricked by what you've heard from Graham or myself tonight from our Bible reading, then I want you to respond to this prayer. Let me pray for you. Father, I want to thank you for such a wonderful salvation. I want to thank you, Lord, that the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, has paid the price for us. And I pray for anyone listening now or listening um, sometime in the future on YouTube, that if they've not received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, if they've not repented of their sin and given their life to Jesus, that they might do so now. Lord, you're just ever so near. We just need to come to you and admit we're sinners and say, Lord, I need you to come and rescue me. Lord, I need you to come and save me. I need you to come. And like that adulterous woman, I need to be forgiven of my sin. Like that man in that court, I need to be set free. Lord, will you do that for me? Come into my life, Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in your precious name. Amen. And friends, if you prayed that tonight, then life can start afresh for you right now. Get in touch with us. Let us know. And we'll send you more and more information. But every blessing. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Well, thank you so much, Tony. And we're glad that your Internet connection just about stayed with us to the end. We were worried that we were going to lose it. But as you so helpfully said, the wonderful thing is through Christ, uh, we never lose that connection. Uh, with the Lord, we can have that connection restored, uh, which is wonderful to, to, to know. And as you said, it'd be great for you to get in touch. So if you've been uh, watching tonight or even if you're watching subsequently um, on Catch Up, uh, we'd love you to get in touch with us and we'd love to send stuff to you that you'd find helpful. So just go to reallives.net and there's a contact form there and there are various boxes that you can tick. Um, if you'd like a copy of the New Testament or one of the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life, we'd really happily uh, send that to you. If you'd like a booklet that explains more about how to become a Christian and how to get started in the Christian life, we'd love to send one of those out to you as well. Or if you've got more questions and you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, we'd love to be in touch with you. So go to reallives.net and uh, we'll love to uh, contact you about uh, any of those things and send anything out to you that you'd find helpful. But as I promised, we're going to have time for questions now. Uh, So I'm going to hand over to Phyllis, who's been uh, collating the questions, and she can fire them off in a moment. Thanks, Phyllis. Thanks very much, everybody. Uh, Dano, the first one's to you. Um, And it's going back to Christians in sport. How do you help fellow Christians in sport? Do you meet together, COVID permitting, to support one another? Or what support do you give? Uh, Yeah, sure, Phyllis. Thank you very much. Um, Well, uh, I think I'll pick out uh, three ways of doing it. Uh, n- number one, for young people aged 11 to 18, the main way we do it is to have camps in the summer where they can meet lots of other girls and boys who are very committed to competitive sports clubs and all the work that goes with ferrying around to play. We give them a chance to meet with each other. So for young people, it's a bit like that. For Some students, uh, the main day for playing sport, not in COVID period, (laughs) is Wednesday afternoon. And typically there's a one hour prayer meeting and Bible study on a Wednesday morning in their campuses. So they can encourage each other to go and represent Christ the way they play in the afternoon. And Phyllis, uh, for the questioner, I I will give you some of the most tremendous things I've seen in 30 years 
of working with professional athletes that have come from the sadness of the lockdown in some many lives is that nobody could go to train or play at all. So I might happen to know 40 managers or coaches in, in England and Scotland and Wales involved in professional football. They may know a little bit about each other, but they've never been in the same room because they're always working. And then in lockdown, we said, hey, fancy coming on a Wednesday morning for an hour. We'll look at a Bible passage for 10 or 12 minutes, then go off in threes and fours to discuss it and come back and say what you felt. And by the third week, there were people saying, listen, if we start at 10, don't go away at 11. Why don't you let us meet with other people, with our friends and go into a room to chat about life and sport and the gospel? Excellent. And so it just grew. And, and and it's still going. They're back at work, but it's still going. And it's happened to um, Olympic athletes who travel the world because they haven't been able to compete. Tennis players. So, Phyllis, I better stop. But some of the things that have happened have been impossible. Never seen them before because of the Zoom and the time in history. But the main and last thing to say would be, the first thing we try and do if somebody does meet Jesus personally in the way that Tony described by turning to Christ, we try and find them a church where for boys and girls or young people or adults involved in sport, they can just go to church if they don't go to church already. If they're famous, we find somebody who will look after them properly because the local church is where we want people to grow up. Does that help? Great. Thank you. Thank the Lord for Zoom. What would we do without it? Oh, I know. And <laughs> um, are there many Christian footballers? Yes, I know. I never, I've, I've never said yes out loud to that before. I think that's the first time I've ever said it out loud. Uh, Phyllis, there's two things I think in my mind about this for the question. And I think I, I hope it's helpful to everyone else. Roger and I have talked about this. Roger Carswell and I have talked about this a couple of times. You know, if you're 25 years old and you play for, oh, dare I pick a team now, you know, Arsenal or Manchester United, oh, careful. If you play for a famous team and you meet Christ and you have no background in Christianity, of course, you're a baby, the Bible says, you're newborn. It's like a new birth. What we have to make sure is that that young man in football doesn't get exposed too quickly. He needs to grow a little bit and he needs to learn to share his faith in his workplace with his teammates. So we have to protect him from just being on the back page of the tabloids straight away with his faith because it's very tricky. Uh, and so, on. so we've been ever so careful about looking after people like that. But, but second of two, yes, there are. I mean, there, I mean it's hardly revival, but I, I know a good 100 to 150 current professional players. I know oh, excellent. 50 yeah. or 60 coaches across the football league and the Premier League who follow Jesus without any embarrassment. What you know, they're pr they're, they're proud's the wrong word. They're glad to know Christ and they tell people. So I can't believe it. Remember, I said, "How many are there?" And he said, four. I said, "Who's the fourth? He said, "You." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's taken 30 years, so, so maybe, maybe more people will start to meet Christ because there's more there. So it's, it's a very exciting time, but still plenty to do. There are 2,000 professional footballers, so yeah. we're nowhere near. Yeah, 
Good news, though. Yeah. Um, this is a personal question. Have there been times when your faith has been tested? And if so, how did you cope? Maybe not in the football realm, but maybe yeah. outside of the football yeah. realm. Of course. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Multiple times. <laughs> Quadruple, multiple times, exponential, multiple, quadruple times. Um, Yes, uh, I've never felt real pain professionally. I I mean, I've been rejected at football a number of times and and failed. Uh, It always ends in tears, really, uh, in that kind of career. That's never really hurt me. Um, I think when things go wrong at home, uh, and I think it's right to be judicious about that, isn't it? Because we'd all understand this. But when things go wrong at home, uh, in your family or wider family uh, or deep friendships, they hurt um, and they cause pain. I, I think what I, and I'm never nervous about talking about it, Phyllis, actually, but you're always nervous for other people's sakes, not your own, who, who you can't, you know, you wouldn't talk about other people and they're not in the room. And I hope this doesn't sound over religious to somebody who's not a Christian or super spiritual to somebody who is a Christian, because it's not meant to be. Um, at the age of 58, uh, after I was converted at 21 to Christ, I, I've known that even in the toughest times, really, he, he's never been absent. And I think this is what we were talking about earlier and a drawing in Antonio's referring to Michael mentioned it, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the spirit of God is never absent at your, at your lowest moments. You know, you know, he's there even when you feel very little. And uh, I think this is part of the, the reality that we know when he beat death at the cross, the judgment was paid in that law court. I'm free. My price is paid. My penalty is dealt with. My sin is dealt with. But he's not come back yet. <laughs> and it, it's kind of D-Day has come, hasn't it? D-Day has come, but V-E-Day hasn't quite arrived yet. And sometimes, many times, hundreds of times I've said, Lord, as I've got older, hurry up, come back, <laughs> hurry up. Okay. Yeah, I hope that's okay, Phyllis. I, 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 it's hard to talk about other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you a break. Tony, maybe you could, if your internet's working on here, and um, I have been told that I should repent. What does that mean? Isn't it enough just to believe in God? Well, to repent means literally to just turn around. It's like you're going in one direction and then you, you stop and you turn.